Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, my name is Richard Chanuk. I'm from UCLA Medical Center, and I'm going to be talking about essential aspects of the new ERS ESC treatment guidelines with a focus on patients with no comorbidities. If we look at the overall treatment algorithm uh, as recommended by the ESC, ERS, and their guidelines, there were some changes uh, compared to prior recommendations. One of the notable changes was separating patients into those with cardiopulmonary or cardiovascular comorbidities and those without. And the treatment algorithm for those two groups of patients is somewhat different. If we have patients with comorbidities, the concept of monotherapy as initial therapy was outlined versus those without comorbidities where initial dual combination therapy in general is still the recommendation. One of the things that is important with these ERS ESC guidelines is the evidence, the level of evidence. And evidence-based guidelines, by their very definition, critically look at all the evidence and grade it. So a recommendation comes with that level of evidence. And if one looks at, for each of the recommendations for initial treatment, let's say in those without comorbidities, where we're talking about initial combination therapy, you can see the level of evidence outlined here. So if we're using um, uh, endothelial receptor antagonists and a PD-5 inhibitor together, that's pretty high level of evidence because that's been shown in a um, very well done randomized controlled trial, the AMBITION trial, to have significant clinical benefit. Um, and so I think as you go through these guidelines, it's very useful to really look at what is the level of evidence. Because in, in effect, you know, you're trying to apply these recommendations to your patients and your practice. And I'm not going to go through every aspect and every level of evidence, but in general, if there's a well-done randomized controlled trial, um, that's going to get a higher grade than if there wasn't. Um, and likewise, if the magnitude of effect was greater, that's going to get a higher grade. So these are important uh, things to look at when you're looking at evidence-based guidelines. One of the things that um, we certainly know is that patients who are high risk, so they're, they're characterized as the highest risk or the sickest patients, that parenteral prostacyclines are recommended as a treatment of choice. Now, we have to admit that there's no real randomized controlled trials in purely high-risk patients, proving that that's the case. But our extensive clinical experience over many years with parenteral prostacycline analogs really is convincing and very impactful, showing that these parenteral therapies are very effective and even the patients who are very high risk. And because there hasn't been a big randomized controlled trial in these patients, you know, you're not going to see huge, you know, high levels of evidence. But nevertheless, that's the recommendation as, as shown here. The other thing which I think is underscored in these new guidelines is that in patients who are, are on or started on parenteral prostacycline, that is still recommended that one adds uh, combination oral therapy. So typically a PD-5 inhibitor and an endothelial receptor antagonist. And there certainly is some data 
of, of enhanced effect in patients who were very sick and being started on so-called triple uh, combination therapy, including a parenteral prostacycline. And that's why in these newer ESC ERS guidelines, that's the recommendation that, that we use combination therapy that includes a parenteral prostacycline. And I should also say that in patients who are on three, let's say, oral drugs or non-parenteral drugs and are still not reaching low-risk status, that that's another area where one would want to transition or apply a parenteral prostacycline. So we still have those therapies, which at least in the case of epoprostanol, have been around you know, since 1996 at our disposal and are still being shown to be very, very efficacious. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you learned something. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.